This is episode number 156, Mental Toughness with World Champion Triathlete and PhD Joanna Zeiger. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. Athletes who are in the lower strata of mental toughness also seem to have low self-esteem. And their low self-esteem often comes from the fact that their self-esteem is very tied to their performances. So that if they are performing particularly well, then their self-esteem will be quite good. And if they're going through a slump or difficulty, then their self-esteem is very low. A lot of times these athletes also have perfectionism in a very negative way, meaning that they have to be perfect in everything they do, which is obviously not possible. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today and for being a part of my awesome community. I really appreciate it. I love you guys. And I just wanted to say thanks. I also wanted to let you know that Crush It Mondays will be back on Monday. I've been pretty sick with the flu and pregnant at the same time, which makes things difficult. And I've had to take some time off of the Crush It Mondays because it's been really hard to work. I'm excited to pretty much be right back at it and to bring you some new creative ideas. And if there are topics that you want me to riff on for Crush It Mondays, I'm always looking for ideas. One of the biggest challenges is coming up with something new every Monday. So if there's something that you'd love for me to do some research on or to talk about, feel free to send me an email. My email is sonya at sonyalooney.com. So let's talk about today's guest. Joanna Zeiger has accomplished a lot so far in her life. She's an Olympian, a world champion triathlete in the 70.3 discipline, She has her PhD and is the author of the book, The Champion Mindset, An Athlete's Guide to Mental Toughness. Her athletic career alone is pretty impressive. She raced as a professional triathlete from 1998 to 2010. She placed fourth in the triathlon at the 2000 Sydney Olympics and won the 2008 Ironman 70.3 World Championships. Through her race company, Race Ready Coaching, Joanna trains endurance athletes to reach their personal best and instills in them the importance of having fun even when they are training hard. She also offers mental skills training individually and through her Champion Mindset course that you can find on trainingpeaks.com, which is also linked to in the show notes. Mental toughness is one of my personal favorite topics, and it's what I attribute to most of my successes as an ultra-endurance athlete because at the top level, everyone is pretty close in terms of ability, and it's your mind that helps you get to that next step. In the show, we defined mental toughness, and we talked about the components of mental toughness. Joanna has also developed her own mental toughness quiz called the Sisu quiz, which is also linked in the show notes, but it'll give you a fair assessment of where you are in each of the components that she's defined as mental toughness, and I highly recommend checking it out. We talk about how to improve your self-esteem, the right way to approach goal setting, using both positive and negative scenarios for visualization, how to get more confidence, and how to deal with injury. These are all things that are near and dear, maybe not so dear, to our hearts as athletes. And even if you're not an athlete, I think that there is a lot of things and elements in mental toughness that can help you be better in your life, in your business, and in your relationships. 
If you haven't left me a review on Apple Podcasts, I would really, really appreciate it. It helps the show get found. It helps us keep wind in our sails whenever we read all of these great messages from you guys. And it just helps with motivation. So thank you so much to those of you who have already taken the time to do that. And for those of you who are about to, thank you. It really does make a big difference. And also, if you'd like to support my work financially, we have a Patreon page called patreon.com slash the Looney show. And your donations, even a couple bucks a month, make a big difference. And thank you to those of you who are making donations. Those donations go to pay my staff. So they go to pay my audio engineer, Roma, who makes sure that every single episode, two episodes a week, sound professional and great. And also to my assistant, Tina, who helps me make sure that these episodes get uploaded and helps me keep my guests organized. So thank you to those of you who have been contributing. And I really, really, really appreciate it. And last, I published a blog post about my pregnancy, and I have a few different posts that I'm working on to get me up to present day, but it was a really difficult time in my first trimester. I struggled with anxiety and depression, and I really didn't feel like talking about it. So I wrote the blog post covering the first three months of my pregnancy, and that's at sonyalooney.com slash just go to meet Sonia and click blog, or just scroll down to the very bottom of the homepage and you'll see the more recent blog posts. You can also find it linked on every single social media outlet that I have. And it's been really cool to have put that out there. It was really scary to be that vulnerable and to show that side of me because that's not a normal side of me. But I've been really happy to hear that it's been helpful for people who have gone through similar things and it's been cathartic for me. So if you haven't checked it out and you're interested, make sure that you do. And I will be posting each week a new blog post to get us caught up to now and then probably posting about one time per month. Okay, so let's get into today's awesome guest, Joanna Zeiger. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so exciting to get to talk to you because as I mentioned before we started recording, I bought your book a couple years ago because personally, I've been doing a lot of my own research on mental toughness because of the types of races that I do. And I had never seen it organized in the way that it was in your book. So congratulations. Yes, thank you very much. It was a labor of love writing it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, writing a book is probably one of the hardest things. It was really educational. You know, I, the, the way I broke it down was sort of, I took a three-pronged approach. You know, one was interweaving some of my own personal stories as, you know, my lifespan from a beginning athlete to a world champion. And I interviewed some athletes. I listened to tons of podcasts and read lots of interviews. And then I also went to the literature to see what the research said about the various facets of mental toughness I was discussing in the book. So it was just a true learning experience you know, listening to the stories of other athletes and then seeing what the science had to say. So how do you define mental toughness? You know, that's a really good place to start. And when I give talks about mental toughness, I always ask people, what do you think mental toughness is? And most of the time in sort of the way mental toughness has been framed historically is that it's just go hard, never give up don't give in, go till you blow, sort of this really emphasis on the toughness part and not so much on the mental part. And in the literature, there really is no consensus for a definition of mental toughness. And so what I like to look at it as more of just this umbrella term with lots of different domains underneath it. So, you know, you've got this construct of mental toughness 
And then underneath it, you have all sorts of things that we think about of determination and perseverance and confidence and self-esteem, positive self-talk, grit. And I would also say that knowing when to stop is also part of mental toughness so that you don't get hurt or overtrained. So mental toughness really is just a very, very broad construct. And what made you be interested in this? Because you mentioned you've been world champion, you've been to the Olympics in 2016. What made you decide, hey, I'm going to go in this direction? Actually, I went to the Olympics in 2000. I went to the Sydney Olympics uh, where I placed fourth in triathlon. It was the first ever time triathlon was contested in the Olympics in 2016. So I actually, a little bit of background on my sporting life. I started off as a swimmer and I went to my first Olympic trials for swimming in 1988. I was a breaststroke IMer, And then I swam through college and I transitioned to triathlon after I finished college. In 2000, I went to the Olympic trials for both marathon and for triathlon. I qualified for the Olympics in triathlon, where I mentioned I placed fourth. And then I also went to the Olympic trials two more times for triathlon in 2004 and 2008, and then twice more for marathon in 2012 and 2016. So, you know, I spent a lot of years, you know, racing at a very elite level. But even with uh, all of the success I had as an athlete, there are also a lot of down periods where I had injuries or self-doubt, you know, just all of the things that, that come with being a professional athlete. It's not a straight line. There's not a straight trajectory. You have so many ups and downs. I have exercise-induced asthma, which was something I dealt with my entire professional career. I was balancing time as a PhD candidate while I was racing professionally. So I, I always had a lot of obstacles that were standing in my way of success. And I always felt that my athletic career was kind of defined by my determination and perseverance. And it got me very interested in sort of the, the mental aspect of sport. I love that. And I can relate on so many levels with that because I don't know about you, but I think that my success in sport has come from the perseverance and the mental side of things. Like I think that if you want to talk about like, I hate the word talent, but like where one is stronger than most, like from a physical perspective, it seems like at the top, you know, everybody is pretty even and it's that mental aspect that is what sets you apart. Oh my gosh, there's no question. Because once you reach a certain level, everybody has some measure of talent. Otherwise, you're not there. And I have seen amazing athletes with so much talent never achieve their potential because they are their own worst enemy and they stand in their way of success, whether it's lack of confidence or making mistakes in training because of that lack of confidence. And and I've seen athletes who on paper don't look as talented yet have accomplished amazing things because they don't let that stand in their way and and their determination and their utmost belief in themselves have carried them further than maybe they should have. I love that. And I want to talk about the CSU quiz, which is at racereadycoaching.com for the listeners who I'd recommend everybody take it because I think it's awesome. But I love this quiz because there's a bunch of different elements of how you've defined mental toughness and the questions that you came up with help give people a score. So like, can you talk about how you decided on those different elements of mental toughness and even how you devise some of the questions? Sure. So after I wrote the book, I got to tell you, I felt a little bit of a sense of loss. Like I really enjoyed writing the book. And like I said, I learned so much from it. And in the book, I have a lot of quotes from champion athletes. And it's funny, for a few months after I finished writing the book, I would read interviews and I think to myself, oh my gosh, that quote would be just so amazing for the book. 
And so I was kind of looking for another way to look at mental toughness. I have a PhD in epidemiology. I have a very strong background in research and methodology and survey design. And so along with my father, we decided to put together a study looking at mental toughness in endurance athletes and trying to determine if we could classify athletes into mental toughness groups. I kind of like look at it as the Myers-Briggs of mental toughness. So you take the Myers-Briggs and it kind of tells you your personality type. Well, I wanted to find out, can we similarly classify athletes into mental toughness types? In doing so, we had to kind of put together a questionnaire that would give us that answer. And there are a lot of validated measures that look at mental toughness in athletes. There was no single measure that really looked at everything that I wanted to. So what we did was we ended up using three different measures. One is called the SMTQ, Sports Mental Toughness Questionnaire. And the other one is the PPIA, the, which I can't remember what the acronym stands for. And the last one was the Rosenberg Self-Esteem. And between using these three different validated measures, we had eight different dimensions of mental toughness. And so the questions that were validated from other people's surveys, but we just kind of put them together under this one umbrella to get these eight different dimensions. And when we put the survey out along with some demographic information and some sports demographics, we had over 1,200 athletes take the survey. And when we put it through this statistical test that, that classifies athletes into groups, we found that athletes came out into three different groups, high mental toughness, moderate mental toughness, and low mental toughness. So on average, on the whole, you know, athletes were either high on all eight dimensions, they were in the middle, or they were low. Now, that doesn't mean that a single athlete can't have some high, some moderate, some low, but on average, that was how that turned out. So that was pretty interesting, and we found that older athletes were more often in the high mental toughness group. We found that athletes in the high mental toughness group had more satisfaction with their sport, and they also placed higher in their division. So having high mental toughness, you know, comes with some good sports parameters that you want. If you have more satisfaction with your sport, you're more apt to stick with it. And obviously we're all striving to do better. So I want to take it kind of one step further so that if somebody was curious about their mental toughness, they could take the quiz and they could find out their level of mental toughness. So I did some fancy calculations and created an algorithm so that people who want to take the quiz to take it, and then they get their level of mental toughness. Yeah, I had a podcast guest on a while ago. She's a, a professional gravel, road and gravel cyclist named Allison Tetrick. And we were just talking about how we wish that we had had the same mental skills when we were younger athletes that, that we have today, because there's certainly a level of athletic maturity that comes from experience. Oh my gosh, no question. Oh, I, I love that. Athletic maturity. I mean, that, that's a great terminology and it's it's so interesting because I do a lot of mental skills training and it's so interesting the things that are holding people back and the things that I advise them on, I know for sure in my early days of my career, I was also a victim of doing those things to myself and standing in my own way, the way that people are. And so, you know, that's one of the benefits of being an older athlete is that you you have those years of experience behind you. And so even though our bodies may not allow us to train as hard, well, we might not need that because we've got those years of base behind us and we're also smarter and, and mentally stronger and maybe less prone to some of the mistakes or less prone to some of the things that held us back in the past. 
So of those initial 1200 athletes that you were looking at, was there a special, like a certain type of athlete? Like, were they all endurance athletes or was there like, some of them were like team sport athletes and some of them were like individual sport and some of them were endurance sport. Like, was it separated that way as well? Most of the athletes were endurance sports athletes. The primary sports were triathlon, running and cycling. Our other group was swimming and primarily individual sports. So there were, you know, my reach is mostly toward endurance athletes. So we did not have very many team sport athletes in there. Again, we did have um, quite a variety in terms of age range. So we had from 20s up to 70s. We had a good male to female split. It was almost 50-50. And we also had from, you know, self-defined recreational athletes all the way up to professional athletes. So we we did have a, a variety of athletes represented. I think it's interesting, and, and I don't know what the outcome of uh, the study was, but a lot of times people assign professional athletes as also having professional mental toughness skills, and that's not always the case. So like, what did your study find with that? Well, we, we did find that we did not have enough professional athletes to really delve into specifically where they fit in in terms of high, moderate, or low, but in terms of overall results, athletes that placed in the top 10% of their age group were more often in the high mental toughness group. So certainly having better mental toughness skills led to better results. Or maybe they, you know, obviously with this kind of study, you can't, we don't know causality, but we do know that that those who had better mental toughness placed better in their division, whether they're in their age group or professionally. And I just do find having worked with, with so many athletes over the years that, you know, athletes in the lower strata, they just have a different psychology. You know, the things that they're concerned about are very different than athletes who are in the higher division of mental toughness. You know, athletes who have moderate or low mental toughness tend to make excuses about their performance. They get defensive when you point things out. You know, particularly low mental toughness athletes, if let's say they get injured or they need to work specifically on something they just, they look at it as like very adversarial in a very adversarial way. Like, oh, I'm never going to get over this. This is just the worst thing. You know, I'll never get through this injury. I don't want to have to do X, Y, Z. I just want to train. Whereas the higher mental toughness athletes tend to look at these things as a challenge. Oh, what can I do to make this better? You know, what do I need to do in the gym or how much time do I need to take off or what specialist do I need to go see? So the attitudes are very different when confronted with adversity. Yeah, taking personal responsibility for your successes and your failures and also your shortcomings is really hard to do. And is that tied most to confidence? I think it's tied to a few things. I mean, one of the things definitely is confidence. The other is self-esteem. Athletes who are in the the lower strata of mental toughness also seem to have low self-esteem. And their low self-esteem often comes from the fact that their self-esteem is very tied to their performances so that if they are performing particularly well, then their self-esteem will be quite good. And if they're going through a slump or a difficulty, then their self-esteem is very low. And a lot of times these athletes also have perfectionism in a very negative way, meaning that they have to be perfect in everything they do, which is obviously not possible. Nobody can be perfect in anything because we're not perfect people and we all make mistakes. And so this whole notion of perfectionism and self-esteem being tied to sport 
and low confidence, it just creates this very negative cycle that they get into. And then there's this whole fear of failure, because when you're a perfectionist, you know, failure is just a terrible thing that could possibly happen. So there's a lot of things that get tied together. So what if someone's listening to this and they're like, yes, my validation is external based on my race results and I find that I have lower self-esteem. What are some things that they can do to start working on that? Well, one of the things I try to counsel people on is separating their self-esteem from their sport and finding things about themselves that are good that have nothing to do with how they are as an athlete. Are you a good person? Do you have integrity? Do you have good morals? You don't cheat. You know, are you a good friend? Are you a good family member? Do you volunteer? So I ask people to look at all facets of their life and pick out things that they're doing that that make them a good person that should raise their self-esteem that have absolutely no bearing on who they are as an athlete. And once you start kind of picking those things out and having them recognize all these wonderful things about themselves, you know, their self-esteem starts to get better. And do you think that people with lower self-esteem have a more difficult time being happy for their competitors when they get beaten? Because I noticed that there seems to be this dichotomy about people or of people who like they actually have a very collaborative view towards competition and they aren't afraid of competition because they think that it's an opportunity for everyone to like go or race at the highest level. Whereas some people look at it as like, oh my gosh, I don't want fast people to be there because then I might lose. Oh, that is so true. That is definitely a thing that happens. And when I was racing, I I always liked to go to the races where my toughest competitors would show up because I wanted to test myself and see what I needed to work on. But you also see athletes that either cherry pick races or they get very disappointed when they find out that that better athletes are going to be there because of exactly what you're saying. It it tends to be a a hit on their self-esteem. And, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to race. And there are other metrics to evaluate a race beside where you place against a specific competitor or the people in your division. And so I always say to people, you know, yes, maybe you need to place in a certain way because you're trying to qualify for Kona or if you're a professional, you know, you need to place in a certain way because it's your livelihood. But there are also other ways to determine if you've had a successful race that have nothing to do with your competitors. And so I try to get people to focus less on the people around them and more on what they're trying to do and how to execute their race. Yeah, like process-based goals. In theory, it's easy to set them, but it's hard sometimes to not feel upset if you didn't run a certain 10K time or like you didn't get a certain place. But like, how do you help people set process, non-outcome-based goals so that they can feel successful regardless of the outcome? Well, a lot of it comes from making sure that you do this well in advance of your race. So you can't just decide the day before your race, well, I'm going to come up with some process-based goals. It's something that has to be worked on ahead of time. And it's coming up with with a list of things that you want to work on. So maybe, you know, if you're, you know, it's cyclocross season right now. So, you know, maybe for somebody that's doing cyclocross and, and struggles with, you know, mounts or dismounts or the start or going over certain parts of a course, it's picking out those things and saying, okay, each race, I want to get better at these things and writing down, you know, okay, so this race, I'm working on this and I want to score myself on that. And I want to work on this and score myself on that so that you can actually give yourself a race score on the various elements that you're trying to improve. And so that regardless of how you place or, you know, if you're running a marathon and you need to do a certain time, 
you can still feel good about what you did, even if you don't hit some of those target goals. And you've been incredibly successful at a lot of disciplines of triathlon, but I want to talk specifically about Ironman because those are the longer races. And I know for me, this is something that I've had to work on. As I start getting closer to that finish line, I start wanting the finish line to be there sooner. And I start thinking about the finish instead of the little bits or the the long bits of racing that's left in front of me. How can someone stop thinking about the finish line? Because especially if you're winning, you're just like, I just got to get to that finish line. But how do you, like, how do you be more present? Let me tell you, I often thought about the finish line and lying down and just getting <laughs> off my feet and being done. So I think that's pretty natural for long races is just thinking about finishing. And in some ways that actually could be very rewarding. And, you know, when people talk about visualization, they usually think about visualization as something that you do before a race, you know, at home, visualizing, you know, how you're going to go through the course or getting through your nutrition or whatever things people visualize. But you can also have visualization during a race. And if visualizing getting to the finish and being done is rewarding, that's a very positive visualization. And for me in Ironman, and, you know, I did well in Ironman, but for the most part, half Ironman was my best distance. And the, the full Ironman, I had a lot of struggles. And so picturing myself lying down at the finish line, that would often propel me over the last 10K when I was just so tired. And I was like, oh, am I even going to get through this? So you can still be present, but also think about what's going to happen in the future. And, and, and that's not a bad thing either, because you know, when you're in the most difficult parts of the race, you do sort of need to look forward to think, well, what nutrition do I need over the next 15 or 20 minutes? And what effort do I need to put in? Am I getting tired? Do I need to back up? Do I need to back off a little bit? Is my focus going away? Do I need to pick it up? So I think it's okay to be present, but also to be thinking about what's going to be going on in the next, you know, 15 minutes to an hour. Something else I heard you say or, or read somewhere was you mentioned using visualization for negative things happening too, so you don't panic. I think especially in mountain biking, like <laughs> this is something that happens a lot, like these out of your control things. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I call them disaster scenarios. And I am a huge fan of visualizing disaster scenarios. And this isn't pessimism. This isn't like a bringing on bad things. This is not an omen. This is preparation. And it's very difficult for us to prepare for every scenario that could possibly happen during a racing situation. And so through disaster scenarios, you can come up with potential things that might happen and then how you're going to get through them. And that way you, you've sort of rehearsed it in your mind so that if it does happen or something similar happens, you don't panic because you're like, oh, I, I have visualized that before. I know what to do. This isn't horrible because I've, I've practiced this in the past. Yeah, it's so important. Like I can remember situations where I did actually that kind of visualization. And when something bad happened, like you get lost or you get a flat tire, like you don't get into this crazy rumination cycle. You just deal with it and move on. And then I've been in other, you know, head spaces where something happens and then you just can't let it go. And then it ends up affecting how you race. Yeah, I mean... You know, and, and look, racing can bring out the best in us and it can bring out the worst in us. And we just have to be prepared for all of that because, you know, even with all of the best preparation and all of the best things that we do and everything that we try, sometimes we still just have a hard time out there and you can have the best mental skills and some days you just get out there and you have a horrible day and you can't talk yourself out of it. Your body isn't responding. And, you know, and this is part of this whole thing of, 
we're humans and we can't be perfect all the time. And even with all of the best preparations and all the best intentions, sometimes we just suck. So I want to talk about confidence because I think that this is something that is really interesting. And you also defined sport confidence as something a little bit separate in your book. I guess, can you start with that? Well, I think this sort of goes back to what we were talking about with self-esteem. And confidence is the same way. You know, people have what I sometimes call false confidence and that they're, they're confident when things are going well, but as soon as they have a difficulty, their confidence just goes away. And so I like for people to build confidence in ways that aren't just performance-based as well or how well they're doing, that confidence can come from learning a skill or teaching somebody a skill. Or, you know, you can have sports confidence from things that aren't just, well, I went to the track today and I ran faster. It could be, well, I've been working on on my biomechanics and I didn't fall apart. Or, you know, I'm getting through this injury and uh, today I was able to run 10 minutes pain-free. All of these things can help you build confidence, but aren't necessarily about a specific performance or how you're doing in a specific moment. So I think people get so focused on the outcome and the numbers and, you know, whether it's watts or pace or, you know, what they're doing in the pool or whatever it is. And they start losing sight of, of the small things that got them there in the first place. And so I like people to kind of go back to the beginning and, you know, figure out skills and other things that they need to work on that will get them to the next level that they can accomplish regardless if they are having a good training block or not. And I have a specific scenario. So say somebody feels pretty confident, they've derived confidence from multiple places in their life, but someone passes them in a race. What is some good positive self-talk that someone can use in that scenario? Because I I know that even the the people of the best intentions can feel really discouraged when that happens. And I've I've seen people give up just from getting passed. Oh, that's funny. I was I was speaking with somebody today. She was in a race last week and somebody passed her and she just gave up. So that that is a very common thing to have happen. You know, this actually ties together a lot of the things that we've been talking about. You know, one is the visualizing the disaster scenarios and having the visualization of being passed and what you're going to do about that. And you can be passed by any number of people, right? You could be passed by somebody that you deem to be better than you. And you're like, well, that's okay. That person's better than me. I'm fine with being passed by that person. Or you can be passed by somebody you see as a lesser athlete, and then you feel terrible about it because like, oh, that person should never be going by me. And so, you know, part of these things should be planned out ahead of time through the visualizations of how you're going to react to both things. Obviously, neither should make you give up and neither should make you feel like, oh, it's okay. You know, if you're getting passed, the other thing you want to do is decide, well, am I going as hard as I can or at the effort I should be going at right now? So let's say, you know, you're on the bike, the Hawaii Ironman is this weekend on Saturday and somebody gets passed on the bike and you look down and your watts are right where they should be. Well, then you just have to be satisfied that that's where you're supposed to be, that the game plan was, these are the watts. You know, if the person just blows by you like you're standing still, you just got to let them go. If it's a slow pass, maybe you decide, okay, I'll see if I can stick with them. But, you know, really, if if you're where you're supposed to be, you got to stay with the game plan. The other thing that people need to recognize is that, you know, when you have this whole thing of like, let's say you get passed and and you immediately have this negative self-talk like, oh, no, I got passed. My day sucks. This is a disaster. Negative self-talk is normal. Everybody has it. 
what differentiates a champion from a would-be champion is being able to turn that negative self-talk into something more positive. So rather than saying, I got past, my day's over, I can't win, it would be, okay, I got past, my effort is where it's supposed to be, maybe that person's just going too hard, they'll come back to me, I know I'm prepared, I'm going to stick to my own race. So it's having the understanding of what your pre-race plan is, not letting somebody else dictate your race, and then you know practicing that self-talk ahead of time or writing down different scripts for yourself so that they're readily available when you need them. Yeah, I love that. Like you, 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 you just said that like confidence comes from your preparation and doing your best on the day. And it's so easy to be like, oh, so, you know, I should have been this or like at the finish line, <laughs> wishing that you had done something different whenever maybe that was the very best that you could have done on that day and being happy with that. Oh my gosh, that is so true. And so many people aren't. I, I just, you know, I almost never hear people come back from a race and say, wow, I am really happy with my race. That was great. There's always hemming and hawing. Oh, I was doing great till mile 20 of the marathon. And then there's a whole litany of things that went wrong. Or, you know, people just have so many excuses at the ready instead of just sitting back and, and reveling in what they've accomplished. And, you know, I'm all for, you know, having a, a pre-race breakdown of what went right and what went wrong. But at some point, you just have to be happy. And, and certainly, there are always things to improve upon. But sometimes you just got to rest on your laurels and say, hey, that was a pretty good day. Yeah. And also, like, no race is going to go perfect. Or maybe very, very few races where nothing happened that could have, like, gone better. And, like, it wouldn't be racing if you showed up at every single time and it went perfect. Yeah. I think that's maybe what keeps us going is trying to get to that perfect race because there is always something to work on. And that's what keeps it exciting are the things that, that crop up that we have to manage on race day. And, you know, it's a, you have to think a lot. You have to react a lot. You have to be prepared. You have to be aware of your surroundings. And that does kind of keep it exciting. And you can go back to the same course and do the same course 10 times and have 10 different results. So I have a funny story to tell, and it's spawned by something that I heard you say in another podcast. So a couple of years ago, I was at a stage race in Colombia. It was like a seven day stage race and a bunch of the pros the day before, or it was two days before decided that they wanted to go out and do a group ride just to see part of the course. Well, you can guess what happened. You know, someone started pushing the pace. Someone else started pushing a little bit harder. And I looked down and I saw my heart rate was like 170. And I thought to myself, like, this is like a day or two before the race. Like we shouldn't be out here like going race pace on a fun pre-ride. So I had to make the decision to turn around and go home. Like I self-dropped and I was the only person of, of the pros that decided I'm just going to go home. And it was really hard. And my husband was there and he was like, he's like, confidence is not doing that. Confidence is like not going hard all the time to, to test yourself or to show others around you how fast you are. And he said that a bunch of the people that were there knew they were going too hard, but they couldn't stop themselves. And he said, I bet you that they're going to wish that they went home. And sure enough, someone sent me a message later that day saying, I wish I had had the confidence like you did to turn around and go home because I know that I was going way too hard. So yeah, like you said in a different podcast that people go hard all the time because they, yeah, they either need to test themselves or they need to show others even whenever they don't need to be going hard. So if someone can like is relating with this, like, yeah, I, I do that. Or like I go out on a ride and I always push myself too hard just because I want to make sure that I'm good. Like, how can somebody disassociate that with their confidence? 
Well, you know, what you did there, you know, speaks to what I said in the beginning when I was talking about defining mental toughness and sometimes being mentally tough is knowing when to stop. And you did that that day. You were mentally tough. You said, this is not right for my race. I don't need this. Let them do their own thing. And you made a really smart choice that is not always an easy choice to make. It's much easier to go with the group and, and, you know, to do what they're doing and to have fun on a ride and to have conversation and, you know, maybe mix it up a little bit. So you, you made the hard choice. That was the smart one. And, you know, part of making those smart decisions is having a plan. So athletes without a plan tend to make probably more often decisions that benefit them long term. Because, you know, then they do go out for those group rides and they get sucked in going too hard. Whereas if you have a plan and you know that it's supposed to be an easy day, you can say, hey, this is my plan today. And a lot of it's just practice and just being okay with being different. You know, it's okay to be different. It's okay to turn around. You don't have to go with the group. You don't have to be a lemming. And it's just building that over time. And one of the ways I like for people to build confidence is something I call daily wins. It's writing down anything that you have done during a day, it could be sports related or non-sports related, that made you feel good. That was something that you accomplished. And, you know, for you that day, turning around was huge daily win. And because it was so successful for you, you'll do that again in the future. And so when people write these things down, they can start building their confidence because they can see over a week how many daily wins they had. And they can see, gee, I am making progress. I am doing well. I don't need to, you know, I don't need those extra watts with the group on a given day. So it's just something that comes over time by recognizing small things, because lots of small things become a big thing. And I think the problem is people think their confidence is going to come from something huge, like a PR or a fantastic workout or some breakthrough. And really, the confidence needs to come from just consistency over time. I love that. And I mean, People think, oh, there's like the light at the end of the tunnel. Like when I get to X, I'll be happy when I get there. But really, at the end of the tunnel, there's just more tunnel. <laughs> yes, that's so true. There's just an- another tunnel. I think it was a study that you published. The result was that men were about twice as likely to be classified as high on mental toughness than women. Yeah, no, I don't remember the exact number if they were twice as likely, but yes, men were more often in the high mental toughness group in that study that we did. So um, just a reminder that we looked at classifying people into groups of mental toughness, and it came out that they were low, moderate, and high groups of mental toughness. And males were more often in the high mental toughness group than females. And the primary reason for that being that men scored much higher in confidence and self-esteem. And this is something that's seen often in studies that that women have lower confidence and lower self-esteem than men. And so one of the things I really try and work on, particularly with adolescent females, and I gave a talk at the Training Peaks Endurance Coaching Summit a few weeks ago on this very topic on building mental skills in adolescent female athletes. My feeling is that if we can start young, you know, start with adolescent female athletes and teaching them how to build confidence and self-esteem in their teenage years, that they can hopefully carry that into adulthood and be less prone to having low self-esteem and confidence as they get older. And I know we've talked about some techniques to build confidence or are there things that you recommend for those girls that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I think, you know, a few things. Number one is not worrying so much about what other people think. Social media can be very detrimental in that way. But it, is, it isn't even just social media, you know, whether it's, it's girls competing on the same team, 
you know, oftentimes aren't very nice to each other. It's this feeling a lot of times that girls have of letting down their coach or letting down their family or letting down their friends. And, you know, what I like to say to them is that, you know, nobody's let down by you if you have tried hard. People are disappointed for you, but people aren't disappointed in you if you have given it your best. And this goes back to that whole notion of perfectionism that you don't have to be perfect because nobody's perfect. You just have to try hard. And so it's getting across these things that you don't have to be perfect. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't let your ego get in the way. Don't worry about being embarrassed. As long as you get out there and you're, you're doing things, that takes a lot of courage. And you shouldn't be embarrassed by your results. As long as you've given it your best, there, there's no embarrassment that should be had. I love that. And I had a question, actually, about the reportings from the study. So it seems like a lot of times men self-report being more confident or like they over-exaggerate their skill level with something. And I can't remember where I read this, but it's like a lot of times women or, or like men, especially in the workplace, they're like, oh, yeah, I totally got this. And then women tend to underestimate their skill, even though they have the skill. So like did the study account for people who maybe weren't self-reporting properly? I mean, that's always an issue with these kinds of studies is that, you know, you're always going to have bias with self-reporting. I think that because these are validated measures and have been validated in a lot of studies, you have a little bit more confidence that you're getting what you're measuring. And because we didn't ask about specific skills, and this is more just kind of general type questions, and there was a lot of internal consistency between the answers. So, you know, we didn't see people with wildly varying answers, you know, not a lot, not a lot of outliers. So all of those things make it more likely that people were answering honestly. And, and I will tell you, it's kind of funny because when people do take the CSU quiz and, and at this point, you know, we had 1,250 or so athletes in the study, but the CSU quiz, which is freely available and you can put the link in the show notes so people can take it if they want, but over 3,000 people have taken the CSU quiz now. And I get a lot of emails from people and, you know, so most are not surprised. Most are like, you know, not only does this reflect, you know, my sporting life, but this is what I see in other aspects of my life. And so, you know, when you ask people if they're surprised by the answers, most of the time they say no. They, they may not think about it in that way because, you know, when you ask somebody about visualization or positive self-talk or determination, they, they may not fully understand what that construct is. But when they answer the questions and they delve into it more deeply, I think they become a little bit more thoughtful about themselves and, and how they are with their sport. So how do you help people, though, like work on their self-awareness? Because I think that some of those questions and I, I'm not criticizing the quiz, like I think it's really awesome. And I, I think that it is a good measure of mental toughness. But I'm just thinking about people who maybe don't have the self-awareness to answer some of those questions. So how do we help people with that part? You just can't. I mean, people have to be ready. The way I broke down the quiz is I took people's, what I call a CSU score. And, the, and, and just uh, to go back, the reason why I call it the CSU quiz, uh, the CSU is a Finnish word for grit. And I just, I love the word so much. It really spoke to me when I saw it. And, um, you know, if you're not familiar with the word, you should look it up. It just is this all-encompassing, wonderful word. And when I created the CSU score, I converted it into martial arts belt. So the bottom 20%, would be a white belt. And then you have all the belts in between and the top 10% would be a black belt. 
And it seems to me that if you're a white belt, you would want to get in touch with me to work on your mental skills. But most of the white belts don't. And, and, and that's sort of that commonality on, on the white belts that I mentioned is that they, they kind of get defensive and they see it as something, as an adversary. And so even though they now have in their hands that they are low on these dimensions of mental toughness, they still choose not to work on it. Or maybe they work on it in, you know, maybe they buy my book and work on it that way. But, you know, rather than reaching out and talking to a human being about how to, you know, make this better, most choose not to. Yeah, you know, I thought about what you just said because there's like a lot of leadership in the workplace things and books and that also requires like that taking responsibility or the being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, like I'm a white belt, I should probably get some help. And I've seen that in those situations, like exactly what you just said, where the people that need it most are like more resistant to actually get the help that they need. And then, and then that's part of it. You know, what, what we talked about is taking ownership. And, and look, I mean, let's be honest. It's scary when you have to confront things about yourself that need work. It is. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, particularly for somebody that already has low confidence and low self-esteem. Right. I mean, they don't want to be reminded, gee, I have low confidence and low self-esteem. So you, you can see where there's there's sort of some difficulty in that. And, you know, so hopefully if any white belts are listening, you know, if you want to, you know, try and work on confidence and self-esteem, get in touch. And, you know, it's, it's no value judgment. You know, what I like to say to people is don't put a value judgment on the score that you got here. This is not a test. It, it shouldn't make you feel bad. It should make you feel encouraged that you have identified some things about yourself to work on that can make you a better athlete. And I love that like an underlying current here is that all of these things can be improved upon because like I've talked about fixed versus growth mindset and Carol Dweck's research a great deal on this podcast. And some people might think, well, my confidence is set or my self-esteem is set or my determination, like, oh, I was just born with a certain level of determination. And I, I love that it's possible to improve at all of these things. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I chose these particular measures, because I wanted things that were actionable. You know, you don't want to point out to somebody something that they just can't fix or they can't work on. Whereas these are very actionable domains that with some practice can be improved upon. And it's just, it's really interesting to me, you know, when it comes to sport, people will train the house down, you know, give me more hours of training. I want to train more, give me more exercise. I want to run more. I want to bike more, more walks. But your body only has a finite ability to work out before it just gets tired. Whereas your brain is just infinitely malleable. You know, you can work on that a lot. No matter how tired you, you are physically, your brain can still work on confidence and self-esteem and, and self-talk and visualization. And, and so uh, to me, like, I just, I don't understand why people wouldn't want to take that extra step, especially if you have sort of maxed out what you can do physically. So if people took this quiz and they're somewhere in the middle and they do want to take the initiative and, and work on some of these skills on their own, like where's a good place to start with that? You know, there and, and look, even people who are black belts, by the way, need to work on things because, you know, like we said, nobody's perfect. And one of the things I find with people who score in the highest level of mental toughness is a lot of times they get in their own way because they think they can just brute force their way through with their mindset, you know? I can get through this. I'm mentally tough. So, you know, everybody needs to make improvements on things. And so ways to start with reading my book, The Champion Mindset, which is available on Amazon. 
And if you're not a reader, you can get the audio version, which I did the audio. So you can listen to me coo into your ear. Which is mental um, toughness I in and also... of itself. Sorry to interrupt, but it takes mental toughness to do your own audio book. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let me tell you, I think that was harder than writing the book. I sat in a little tiny booth. I went out to New York where my publisher is and I sat in this teeny tiny little booth for three days and just read my book into a microphone. It was brutal. I mean, my throat hurt. I had a sore on my tongue that like was <laughs> bothering me. And then what's really interesting is that the spoken word and the word that you read is not always compatible. So things that just are very smooth when you read it, when you actually try to say it, don't roll off the tongue well. So I would just make so many mistakes and I'd have to go back and, you know, reread the same sentence over and over again. And sometimes I just couldn't even get the word pattern correct and I have to make a couple little changes. So I needed a lot of mental toughness to get through that. But it was it was a very cool experience. So there's the book, there's the audio book. And I also have a course that people can do through Training Peaks. It's called the Champion Mindset. And that goes through all the dimensions of mental toughness that were measured in the CSU quiz, kind of explains in depth what that dimension means, some research about it, and then some tips on how to make improvements. And that would be good for both athletes and coaches. So those are some good places to start. And people can also get in touch with me for a mental skills training session as well. Awesome. And I'm, I'm not wrapping it up just yet. Normally, I ask that at the very end, but I thought I should ask that now because it's really relevant to where we are in our discussion. I wanted to ask you about injuries because that's a question that I get a lot from people that like they email me and they say, oh, I've had an injury and I'm just really struggling. Like, do you have any advice for me? So what advice would you give? I think when it comes to injuries, the very first thing needs to be getting a proper diagnosis for the injury. Athletes, they'll be like, oh, this hurts. And they'll kind of hobble around for the hurt for a while before actually figuring out what the hurt is. So get a diagnosis. Sometimes it's obvious, or maybe it's a recurrence of an injury, and so you know what it is. But if it's something that is less clear cut, go to the doctor or go to your physical therapist or a trusted medical professional and figure out what's wrong. Once you've got the diagnosis, then come up with a game plan of recovery. So, you know, a high hamstring tear is going to have a different recovery pattern than plantar fasciitis, which is going to look different than a sore knee. The other thing is if you have recurrent injuries, get a good biomechanical assessment. You know, have somebody look at your posture and your strength and, and figure out if there's some kind of repetitive motion that you're doing that is contributing to the injury. The second thing or another part about injury is visualization can very much help injury recover. So visualize yourself, you know, going through your physical therapy, visualize yourself getting better, visualize yourself being happy. Do not shut yourself out from people around you because you're jealous that they're not injured. That is not a good way to go. Try and keep yourself engaged. And if you're still able to participate in some kind of sport, so you know, if you have a cycling injury, but you can walk or you can get in the pool, you know, try and cross train. So do whatever you can to keep yourself moving. I'm, I'm a big fan of active recovery and active movement if it's at all indicated and possible. And um, walking is a great modality that people ignore. And uh, so get out and walk, even if that's all you can do. Awesome. And then the last topic I want to discuss is like going hard in races. Like I know... <laughs> 
I heard it was like some somewhere else I heard or read that it's like your thing where you collapse at the finish line because you went so hard or you lay down at the finish line because you just like were totally spent. But not everybody's able to do that, like to push themselves to that that amount. I don't know. It could be discomfort. It could be just like they're afraid that they'll blow up. But like, what advice do you have for people who need to be able to deal with the discomfort of going that hard? Well, first, I should say that I do not recommend going so hard that you pass out. I mean, you know, yes, I had that ability and that happened. And sometimes I passed out before I actually got to the finish line. Not a good thing. You know, part of my thing was I always said that I don't I didn't always have the warning light. And so I would just go from feeling okay to being on the ground very quickly. So that was not necessarily a good thing, but did allow me to push to my absolute limits. And so, you know, I rarely finished races and and could say I could go harder. So that maybe was my special gift that allowed me to accomplish what I did. And, And not everybody is going to have that ability, nor should they. Now, people do need to learn how to become uncomfortable if they want to, right? Not everybody wants to be uncomfortable. And, and again, they don't need to be. But for people that, that are in that area of, I know I can do better, I'm not giving it my all, that's what training is for. So, you know, find some days in training where you're just going to push the envelope a little bit. So you don't want to train so hard that you've overtrained and now you've taxed yourself too much to race well, but it's okay in training to push yourself. You know, and this is where having a good coach to give you guidance on those kinds of workouts so that you learn how to be uncomfortable in training so that when you get to a race, you know what that feeling of discomfort is. And, you know, if you're new to it, something that you can do is, you know, let's say you're doing a four-hour race. Well, you shouldn't be uncomfortable for four hours, right? That That's not right either. And so for me, when I would do half Ironmans, you know, maybe my discomfort would happen, you know, at the very end of the bike, my legs would get tired. And then I'd get to transition to the run. And I'd feel pretty good for a while. And then maybe the last five or eight or nine K would start to feel bad and I'd have to kind of push hard. So that's the other thing is that you shouldn't be uncomfortable for the entire race because that's not good pacing management or effort management. So the other thing that you can do as you're getting familiar with this is kind of look at it as an interval like you would in training. So that like, let's say you're in training and you're doing, you know, five by five minutes with some recovery at a certain wattage and that's your workout. Well, you can look at your discomfort the same way. So maybe you're in a race and you're like, okay, I'm going to be uncomfortable now for five minutes just to test it out. And then I'm going to back off and give myself a break from that. And then if that, if I'm okay with that, then maybe I'll let myself be uncomfortable a little bit longer. So, you know, just kind of test it out in small doses rather than just saying, all right, I'm just going to hunker down and be uncomfortable, you know, for 10 K or for whatever it is, if you've never practiced it before. So, you know, just take it in small doses as you go. But again, passing out at a race is not necessarily something you should strive for. Awesome. I think that's really good advice. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that there's a lot of actionable things that people can get out of it. And I'm also excited for people to take your quiz and read your book and get in touch with you. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. That was pretty awesome. And I'm really excited that I got to take that time to chat with Joanna. I actually had purchased her book several years ago and I had it on my shelf. I had read it. And then finally getting to talk to her was really fun. And it's one of my favorite topics. I hope you guys found a lot of value in it. Make sure you take her Sisu quiz. And if you're interested in doing more, check out her course on trainingpeaks.com. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't yet hit subscribe to the show, you can do that on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Thanks so much for sharing the show with your friends, for being awesome, for being a part of this great community and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.